it was clear. We had a program. There was a program installed without any memos, without any phone calls, without any really direct communication. There was some type of mental program, a mass psychosis, a mass neurosis, a mass plan to promote as much fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death, a plan to deny early treatment, and only message, a message of fear to wait in isolation, lockdown, and be saved by a vaccine. Why don't you introduce yeah. yourself for us? My name is Erin Olszewski. I'm from Tampa, Florida. Um, I'm a registered nurse. I am an Army combat veteran. I served in Iraq 2003 to 2004. I am a mother of three small boys, and I guess I'm best known as the New York City nurse whistleblower. Very few countries in the world lost more people to coronavirus than New York did, and no states lost more in the United States. How exactly did that happen? It's a question that needs a serious answer. Many people died. Finding out seems of no interest whatsoever to the press. They'd rather shame people for visiting the beach. Erin Marie Olszewski is a nurse. She spent almost a month working in New York's Elmhurst Hospital. That was the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in the state. She was so shocked by what she saw that she began to collect undercover footage of what was happening around her. I remember the news came on and they were talking about this coronavirus. And this was February and I'm like, watch, this is gonna be something. So I was, I kept my eye on it. You know, anytime they introduce uh, a new virus, there's gonna be problems, you know, and especially just being in the nursing field, you know, and working in the hospital, what can I expect? And then come March, you know, we're locked down, which never made sense. They locked us down to keep the hospitals, you know, able to, you know, function for the influx of COVID patients, which at my hospital here never came. There were no influx of patients. There was no wave. They were actually furloughing nurses. At that point, I was already having red flags because it didn't make sense to lock people down if we weren't busy. And what it was doing is, is actually causing more illnesses and, and, and death by locking people that actually needed treatment in their homes. You know, they weren't coming to the hospitals and they were dying at home, you know, and becoming really, really ill. They were afraid. Everybody was really afraid. What they kept doing is just pushing back the wave. The wave will come, you know, and at this point, all eyes are, are on New York. You know, what's, what's going on in New York? Two hours, the Javits Center will complete its transition from a convention center into a makeshift hospital. It is one of many opening as the healthcare system prepares for this next surge of patients. Gus, a field hospital inside of Central Park, something neighbors told me tonight they never thought they would see. But take a look behind me here. Here we are. The tents have gone up next to a children's playground inside Central Park. And come Tuesday, they will be occupied with COVID patients, surrounded by doctors and nurses working in the elements to save lives. After a while, I decided that I wanted to travel to New York. So I'm like, you know, if they need help, then I'll go. I'm not, you know, I've, I've been to war. You know, it can't, it can't be much worse, you know, and um, kissed my kids goodbye, got a ticket, and I was on my way to New York. Clueless, I didn't know what to expect, just like anyone else. I landed, airport's empty, took a, an Uber 
to the hotel that they put us up. I was at specifically at the Marriott Marquis in Times Square. I'm expecting like, let's go. You know, it, this is this is war, right? It was the front lines. This is the war zone. Uh, sat around three days. Um, talked to other nurses that were there. Some of them were sitting around for 21 days, three weeks, four weeks. And this was early April at the height of the pandemic. You're seeing all over the news that there's not enough supplies, there's not enough nurses. There was enough people and enough supplies, but they weren't utilizing them. So that was kind of my first red flag. Like if this is a war zone, you know, when, when you drop into a war zone, you get to work. You fight the war. It was ultimately kind of a lottery and they picked me by chance to go to Elmhurst Hospital, which happened to be the epicenter of the epicenter. So it's the one that everybody saw all over the news. You saw all the bodies in the freezer trucks and I'm like, it's my luck, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm just unlucky. So we took buses. All the nurses went to their specific hospitals and they took me over to Queens, uh, the epicenter of the epicenter. So that's where this story, you know, kind of begins. The Elmhurst Hospital in Queens is right now the epicenter within the epicenter. Elmhurst Hospital is the epicenter of the epicenter. And Elmhurst Hospital is really at the center of this crisis here in the city and in the country with doctors desperately trying to keep up with the growing number of patients as supplies dwindle. And you see the black body bags? You say, what's in there? It's Elmhurst Hospital? Must be supplies? It's not supplies, it's people. My first real shift is when I really realized that the reason that people are, um, were dying it was not because of COVID. It was because of the treatment that they were getting or the lack of treatment. It was negligence. It was a whole lot of people that kind of gave up on these patients. It was a very eerie, very sad, sombering walk through these halls. And then my first shift, I realized that these patients weren't actually even being treated. You know, they, they weren't being given medications to actually help them. They were being sedated, you know, they were being paralyzed uh, in order to keep them on ventilators. Nobody cared. You know, there was a, a couple patients that I, I went into their rooms, you know, to assess and, you know, they had feces at their backs for at least two, three weeks. You know, they were left to die. And I'm not saying every patient, you know, not every doctor, not every nurse, you know, was just neglectful, but it became the norm. I've been taking care of a patient for like a week right now. This is my and I called them. And he's been doing great. He had a trach put in and He's been doing great. He's been talking, like, or communicating with me. He's telling me, like, laughing at my jokes and talking to his kids on FaceTime a couple days ago. And I told him that, I told his kids that he was doing fine. And he, and he was. And today, I was giving him, and they came in and they told told me that I need to leave the room and I have to give report to somebody else. They took me from that unit and they put me in the emergency room and they don't need me there but they put me there and I'm not even there like 20 minutes 
I'm not even there 20 minutes and I hear a code being called in my room that I was just left. <laughs> and it's him. <sighs> and he was fine. He was fine. I don't understand that nothing makes sense. Like, <sighs> why would they take me out of his room and put me in the ED? And then not 20 minutes later, he's dead. It doesn't make sense. Like, did they kill him? He was my one patient that was gonna live. He shouldn't have died. I don't know what they did to him. Something's not right. I got back to my hotel room and I broke down like on the floor, in tears, like, I can't do this. So, I haven't talked about like this part in a long time. I like didn't know what else to do, so I called like my friends. I told them like what was happening. I told them that it was literally gross negligence. Nobody cared. They weren't coding patients that were, you know, a code blue, they would just let them go and you know then reporting to the families like that they did everything they could when I know that for a fact that they didn't and when I saw that that's when I, I realized like nobody is going to believe this no one's gonna believe that this is happening without proof and so I contacted um, a couple New York attorneys and we decided that I needed to go undercover so I did this patient is in with like a non-COVID. I don't, I don't understand why they're doing that. I know, there's four patients in a row here yeah. that are non-COVID. And this is supposed to be the COVID. Yeah. Because seventh floor, they shut it down. That's right, I'm, I'm confused. And then they're going to have non-COVID there. Yeah. This is going to be the only COVID, so they shouldn't put any non-COVIDs here. Well, that's what they've been doing. The guy over in 29, I had him upstairs because I was on CCU before it. Yeah. And he came in with a, a with a stroke. I know, that's what 26-1 was, a stroke. And Nothing no COVID, and now it. he's got COVID, and he's on a vent. Well, because we gave it to him here. My attorney dropped off a pair of spy glasses for me. I got audio recording software for my phone and I started recording. My bigger problem with this whole scenario is when they intubate people who don't need it. Yeah. And it looks very clear to me that they're just pushing it. It was like the day before intubation who was fine on the yeah. rebreather. And now he's 37 years old and dead. This isn't what my profession stands for. We can't look away. We're mandatory reporters. Like, this is our job to protect the patient. As nurses, we're patient advocates. Our oath is to do no harm, and like that's all that was being done. There were very few actual ICU doctors running these floors. They had residents in. There was ophthalmologists, dentists, um, you know, people that had, had absolutely no clue what they were doing. Maybe, you know, two or three respiratory therapists for the entire hospital. When we needed respiratory therapists for the ventilators, because nobody knew how to run them, which also caused death. So they would blow out these patients' lungs and then call the day. 
Um, next patient in, same thing. Nearly 2,000 people have tested positive for coronavirus. That's bad, and this is worse. Hospitals there are getting ready tonight for a surge. Meantime, Governor Ned Lamont toured a facility manufacturing ventilators for critical care patients. 34 people have died, and federal officials just approved a disaster declaration for the state, and that will allow all eight counties to be reimbursed for costs associated with the response to the pandemic. Patients coming into the emergency room would be given no options and they would be told if you're not admitted you're going to die essentially you need to get admitted and so they did you know fear is a fear is a very very strong emotion and when people are unaware of what's going on obviously they're going to trust us but nobody was telling the truth the uh, comfort now is just pulling into dock here in they could have went to the comfort ship where, you know, if they didn't have COVID, that's, that was meant for, for them, but it was just bypassed. Governor Cuomo said that they were running out of space and they needed extra hospital beds for the patients that didn't have COVID. And so President Trump at the time sent the ship and the ship was never utilized because they were ordered to stand down. You know, they admitted everybody to these hospitals. They stuffed them in like sardines because there was financial incentive to do so. It was $13,000 to admit these patients to the hospitals, another $39,000 to put them on a ventilator. And then in some cases, people were worth $10,000 per death with no liability to any of the hospitals, any of the staff, any of the doctors, any of the nurses. And all at the same time, you know, nurses were getting paid $10,000 a week on average. Doctors were getting paid, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a week, and everybody was on gig orders. And if you said anything, you know, you were fired, which ultimately, you know, happened to me at the end of my, my time in New York. A Houston hospital is having success treating the coronavirus patients. In fact, mm -hmm. its recovery rate is perfect. Fascinating, isn't it? To treat patients here, Dr. Veron is using an experimental drug protocol. It's a cocktail of vitamins, steroids, and blood thinners. Each patient also is getting hydroxychloroquine, the malaria drug touted by President Trump. The protocol is controversial because there hasn't been time for extensive testing, but Dr. Veron says it works. We've treated over 40 plus patients with this uh, treatment and we haven't had a single complication. So far, he says, none of his patients have died. This is time of war, but it's no time to double blind anything. This is, uh, this is working. And if it's working, I'm gonna keep on doing it. What we're finding clinically with our patients is that it really only works in conjunction with zinc. So the hydroxychloroquine opens the zinc channel, zinc goes into the cell, it then blocks the replication of the, of the cellular machinery. You're prescribing it and it is working for COVID-19 patients. Every patient I've prescribed it to has been very, very ill. And within eight to 12 hours, they were basically symptom free. And so there's an important concept I want everyone to understand. It's called the absolute risk reduction. And even though there was 90% vaccine efficacy, meaning that in one group from the vaccine down to placebo, there was a 90% reduction in the cases of COVID that happened, the numbers were small. And because the numbers were small means the vaccines could never have an impact broadly in the population. It's mathematically impossible. The absolute risk reduction is what we apply to populations. So I knew it. I knew the vaccines would never have an effect. I knew that in November of 2020. 
Well, as things cranked on, we had more and more resistance to early treatment, but we broke through and we prescribed and we took care of patients. I took care of all my high-risk patients without any hesitation. It was constantly working to treat patients over time to save lives. And I was able to do coordination through advice, through others. I was able to treat patients up into their 90s, through their 90s with sequence multidrug therapy and keep them out of the hospital. It was clear to me, as I started looking through the literature, the only people being hospitalized and ending up in mechanical ventilators were those who received no early treatment. They knew that ventilators were the wrong treatment. It was killing 100% of the patients, but they couldn't do anything because Cuomo had banned all alternative treatments. So we couldn't use the hydroxychloroquine and zinc protocol. They wouldn't use any, um, like the high dose IV vitamin C. You know, ventilators were the only treatment. And the reason that they did this early on is to keep a closed circuit. That's ultimately what led all these patients to the freezer trucks. One of the milestones was October 8th. The National Institutes of Health issued its first treatment guidelines for COVID-19. And they said specifically, someone gets COVID-19, they go home in quarantine and do nothing, 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 day by day by day, no treatment, no treatment, no treatment. Go into the hospital, sick enough to go in the hospital, no treatment, no treatment, no treatment. And then when you're sick enough to go on oxygen, we can start treatment. Remdesivir, remdesivir, a relatively toxic antiviral. It's a polymerase inhibitor. I can tell you by that late in the illness, the virus is not replicating that much. It's not. Wait a minute. There was no drugs up front to impair viral replication, nothing to treat that, that intercurrent cytokine storm and nothing to treat thrombosis, nothing. I mean, when the oxygen saturation is going down, my thought is that's, that's blood clots, that's micro blood clots in the lungs. That's not remdesivir time. That's, that's late stage treatment time. But that was the NIH guidelines. Unfortunately, on page eight of that document, it says, even though these are our recommendations, the doctor in the end can ultimately decide what to do. And I said, thank you, thank you. And of course, I was gonna do Everything that I knew and I had published, and those were my anchors, I was going to do that. And I was not going to let my patients get slaughtered by this virus and have them get no treatment and march through weeks of no care, go into the hospital in complete and total panic, desperation, contaminating their loved ones, contaminating Uber drivers and paramedics in this flurry to get to the hospital and then get put on oxygen, get put into isolation, potentially mechanical ventilation, never see their loved ones again, and then in some, sadly, over 600,000 Americans never leave the hospital. That will go down in history. Medical historians and ethicists and general historians will review these events that I am speaking about right now and the documents that memorialize this. And this will go down as one of the biggest mass psychosis diabolical, nihilistic, heartless times in human history. How did we let our most vulnerable people suffer, sicken, contaminate, isolate, be forlorn, and die? It's absolutely criminal. By the end of 2020 and into 2021, it was clear we had a program. There was a program installed without any memos, without any phone calls, without any really direct communication. There was some type of mental
program a mass psychosis, a mass neurosis, a mass plan to promote as much fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death, a plan to deny early treatment, and only message, a message of fear to wait in isolation, lockdown, and be saved by a vaccine. In every corner of the country, Americans have been rolling up their sleeves today. Frontline medical workers in ERs, ICUs, and COVID units who've seen firsthand the pandemic's horrors. Among the first, Sandra Lindsay, a critical care nurse in New York. I feel hopeful today, I'm relieved. I feel like healing is coming. Because minor side effects can cause some people to miss a day or two of work, hospitals are staggering who gets it when. All done. Not too bad. At Methodist Health in Dallas, Teresa Mata, who cleans rooms at the hospital, was at the front of the line. They tell me I am the first person to take the vaccine, so woohoo! Across the country, hope that this is a game changer. Once uh, we get enough people to get this vaccinated, we can kiss COVID goodbye. The Facebook Variety Hour presents Vax Screen. When we poke you, where we know you're gonna be, you're gonna be safe from COVID infecting you. My wing hurts a little bit, but that's okay. I made the decision to get Big Bird vaccinated because COVID vaccines are the best way to keep yourself, our friends and neighbors, and me safe. We will get to play together when it's done. The shot. We will get to play together when it's done. The shot. We will get to play together. We will get to play together. Colleagues and supporters, we declare that Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, Janssen and AstraZeneca and their enablers willfully withheld and omitted crucial safety and effectiveness information from patients and physicians and should be immediately indicted for fraud. We know that shortly after administration of these products, thousands of people have died. And although correlation isn't causation, reasonable criteria have been applied to examine the relationship between injections and the events and is absolutely clear-cut that these are the cause of death. Mechanistically, the design of these products was knowingly deficient in a number of ways. First, they caused the expression in the human body of toxic virus spike protein. Unlike what they told us that it would stay in the injection site, they distribute widely around the body. There is no built-in limit to the amount of toxic spike protein that can be made or for how long it is made. And that's the cause of the toxicity. Turning to the clinical trials, there is evidence of questionable practices all around. For example, several of the studies were clearly unblinded while they were ongoing. And also, in a number of cases, subjects were removed from the database prior to statistical analysis in a way that is suggestive of fraud. We were given blanket assurances time and again by all of the companies about the benign safety profile of their products, even as 
the products rolled out, and in the earliest weeks, they must have known this was not true. It appears that these products provide little or no protection from the virus that they sought to protect us from. And finally, they cannot claim lack of anticipatory knowledge because the companies and the FDA knew that products of this type would produce many toxicities. It became clear we are going to gamble away all hopes on early treatment, all hopes on really considerable advances in the hospital, and we were going to gamble away hundreds of thousands of American lives in order to provide these precious COVID-19 vaccines. I said, listen, I'm a doctor. We're conservative. When we invest, we always diversify. You know, we don't like to put all our eggs in one basket. And I felt so sick to my stomach that we were gambling with the lives of precious Americans. It was just kind of said, there's going to be a vaccine and there's going to be a needle in every arm and you're going to take it and it's going to roll out and you're not going to ask any questions and we're going to go with it. And when we started to look at the data on vaccines, by March, we had already accumulated about 1,600 deaths that were coming up in VAERS. And then unceremoniously, the CDC put on their website that they had reviewed all the deaths and none of them were due to the vaccine. Not the death rates from this vaccine are, there's been more deaths in eight months than in all the billions of vaccines combined over the last 30 years. From this one vaccine, 17,000 recorded deaths in the United States, and we know the death rate's much, much higher than that. Probably 40 times the best math, the best you know studies are showing that it's 40 times that. My message to unvaccinated Americans is this. What more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? We've made vaccinations free, safe, and convenient. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, and your refusal has cost all of us. So please do the right thing, but just don't take it from me. Listen to the voices of unvaccinated Americans who are lying in hospital beds, taking their final breath saying, if only I'd gotten vaccinated, if only. I'm announcing tonight a new plan to require more Americans to be vaccinated to combat those blocking public health. My plan also increases testing, protects our economy, and will make our kids safer in schools. Just days after getting their second COVID-19 vaccine, two teenage boys died in their sleep. Medical experts have been investigating what happened and have now released their report. An epidemiologist says it adds to a body of evidence that confirms Pfizer's vaccine can lead to death in children. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. To attend class in some parts of the country, kids need to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The federal government says they're safe, but gives them warning labels of what could lead to death. Uh, this myocarditis warning that is out on Pfizer Moderna is very serious. Epidemiologist Peter McCullough says this in light of a new report. Its authors investigated the cases of two teenage boys from different states. Both of them had received second doses of the Pfizer vaccine, only to die a few days later in their sleep. McCullough says that in his view, the study confirms that Pfizer's vaccines led to the deaths of the teenagers. This is not about freedom or personal choice. 
It's about protecting yourself and those around you. The people you work with, the people you care about, the people you love. My job as president is to protect all Americans. So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. To those of you running large entertainment venues, from sports arenas, concert venues, to movie theaters, please require folks to get vaccinated or show a negative test as a condition of entry. And to the nation's family physicians, pediatricians, GPs, general practitioners, you're the most trusted medical voice to your patients. You may be the one person who can get someone to change their mind about being vaccinated. Tonight, I'm asking each of you to reach out to your unvaccinated patients over the next two weeks and make a personal appeal to them to get the shot. America needs your personal involvement in this critical effort. After it being really painful with Eli, I went to the um, GP and this is what I advise to do during the day if I'm not doing anything, so say if it's just a normal day. So to do this during the day, to keep it lubricated, to keep my eye closed. And yeah, this is how it's gonna be. Man, I have just been blown up and not by the right people. Uh, being called a sheep that I deserve to die uh, because I made the decision to try and help my community, help the world fight this COVID virus. I just have to read a quick disclaimer from Moderna and the FDA. Uh, all the clinical trials are still ongoing. The long-term protective efficacy of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine is currently unknown. Uh, it is therefore not known whether a vaccine recipient who was exposed to the virus causes, uh, the virus that causes COVID-19 will get mildly ill or have no symptoms. Uh, results of the ongoing phase three study show that there are no cases of severe COVID-19 infection among participants who received the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine compared with 30 cases among those who received placebo, which is uh, no vaccine. Okay, so only 30 people got that placebo? Uh, in the phase three, yeah. So there's been three phases. They're all ongoing uh, because uh, basically the people that got it the first dose they're still like looking at the long-term effects of it right so they can't really say the the trials are done necessarily okay so everybody who's getting these vaccines right now is in the clinical trial it's not like some of us got it and some of us didn't like everyone who's getting it is in and participating in the clinical trial uh pretty much i mean yeah okay yeah i'm saying that every intervention for every medical countermeasure that has been taken has been done unlawfully under 21 CFR section 50.24. Okay. So everything. Yeah. Everything that has been done has been a violation of 21 CFR. Okay. So, so this is an open and shut, by the way, this is an open and shut case. This requires no discovery. There is no information that we are lacking. 
This is a violation because every state, every county, every non-elected official, every governor, every public health authority, period, has put the pub public population into an unlawful clinical trial. Yeah. It's pretty heavy, huh? Well, here's the problem. Those are some of the laws, criminal and civil, that have been willfully broken. Yet we are supposed to accept that these criminals and these people who have neglected the civil laws are still somehow acting in our best interest. I don't know if you've ever done a background check on an employee or, I don't know, maybe checked out a babysitter before you have them watch your kids. These people are criminals. The people who are controlling the narrative have violated at least six criminal statutes, at least, they violated at least five civil statutes, at least, and we're still listening to them. Think about that, people. Criminals are actually running the asylum. question, uh, I'm going to go to Dr. Fauci, Dr. Marks, and Dr. Lewinsky. Um, what percentage of the employees in your institute, your center, or your agency of your employees has been vaccinated? You know, I'm not 100% sure, Senator, but I think it's probably a little bit more than half, probably around 60%. I, I can't tell you the exact number, but it, it's probably in the same range. Some people vaccinated at our facility and others at uh, outside of the facility. We're encouraging um, our employees to get vaccinated. We've been doing town halls and education seminars. Um, we have the, our staff have the option to report their vaccination status, but as you un understand, the federal government is not requiring it, so we do not know. Okay, I, and listen, you're the face of why people should get vaccinated, and knowing and promoting and confidently given numbers, percentages, I think is really, really important as we go into this last part. Now, if you tell me that um, there's some statute that says you can't require somebody to tell you, imagine being the parent of a school-age kid who for generations has been required to have their kids vaccinated before they could start school. Before 2010, there were small changes in the vaccine laws where they changed like a form or they said, you know, a certain signature didn't go here or there. And then in 2015, something really big happened, which it was, called, it was a bill called SB 277. SB 277 took away from parental rights, the ability to personally, you like have a personal belief exemption, any philosophical exemptions, your ability to use your own choice and sovereignty. And then they also took away religious exemption. At the time that we are at right now, they're opening up this whole EUA for kids. The reason why the, the EUA is important, the reason why they opened it up for the kids is because once they pass it through all the way down, like Tony Fauci says, to the six months of age, what they will then do is through ASIP, which is the part of the CDC that determines what goes on the adult and the child schedule. As soon as that vaccine goes on the child schedule, it is under the 1986 Act, complete liability free forever. 
There is no way to hold anybody accountable forever. It's going to be up to the FDA in their usual fashion to make a regulatory decision. And then a few days later, likely the following week, the CDC, in tune with their advisory committee, will make a recommendation for the use of the vaccine in children 5 to 11. I think it's a very important step in the direction of getting more and more people in the country vaccinated. The CDC's new schedule of recommended vaccine includes COVID-19 shots for both adults and kids. Here to explain is Dr. Ari Cohen, Chief of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at Mass General for Children. Dr. Cohen, thanks for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Cohen, as you know, doctors like yourselves have been telling patients for many months now the shots are safe, they're effective. Please get your entire family vaccinated. So in your opinion, what, if anything, changes now that the CDC has officially added the COVID-19 vaccines to that immunization schedule? I think it just makes it standard. Um, and that's the big change, that this is just incorporated as one of the vaccines that we get to that we give to children during the growing up period, just like all the other vaccines that we provide to children. It was kind of like this weird coincidence where we had a patient who received one of the COVID-19 vaccines, and it was Moderna, and she came in for her regular blood work a week later. I had no idea she had the vaccine, and her blood work was so abnormal that the lab called me and was like, what is going on? This person might have to go to the hospital. Like their heart enzymes were super high something called pro-BNP, and their inflammatory numbers were through the roof like they had an infection or something going on. And I was like, I called the patient, like, what is going on? Are you feeling okay? And they're like, I feel fine. Like, I got the vaccine. I had, like, a limp swelling and an inflammatory thing for a day or two. But I felt fine. But even a week later, her blood work was that abnormal. And I was like, that's a problem. Like, how common is that? I have no idea. But I know 16% of women are getting that limp swelling. So I'm like, if this is happening in their blood work to that many people, it's a problem. So I called some local MDs and some DOs, and they were like, that's not good uh, at all, because that's basically what bad COVID blood work looks like. So if the vaccine is creating a blood work panel that looks a lot like the actual infection, that could be really bad. So I started doing more research and more research on people pre and post vaccine, all at my own cost. I was like paying a couple hundred dollars per person just to do this blood work because people didn't want to do it because they didn't want to see what their blood work looked like after the vaccine because it could have been really bad like this patient. And lo and behold, like I'd say maybe 50% of them had blood work that looked close to that bad or really bad. And every single patient pre-post blood work had changes in higher inflammation, higher plaque risk, higher heart stress, higher liver enzymes or gallbladder enzymes. Every single pre-post blood work looks awful, right? Because I called other doctors and they were like scared. They were like, we don't want to get into this. Like, I'm like, you could do the testing yourself and find out. They're like, we believe you, but we can't share this. So we're like, we'll lose our hospital jobs. We'll lose our clinic. They have like integrated medical clinics in Chicago. So it was like, okay, well, someone's got to say it. All right, my name is Dr. Ben Tapper, and this is our first episode of the Time Is Now podcast, and I am sitting down with one of my heroes, a man that I have a ton of respect for and a lot of excitement to be sitting down with, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine, Dr. Robert Malone. Welcome, um, and thanks for sitting down with me. How did you get into the this this type of work? How did you come about of developing the mRNA? And just kind of fill us in on that. So first off, mRNA is a biologic molecule. Uh, I didn't invent it. It's a fundamental aspect of biology. 
Uh, DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein. Number two, I didn't invent these mRNA vaccines. I didn't work on these mRNA vaccines. I have been a critic of these mRNA vaccines and how they've been designed and deployed and tested and uh, the bioethics associated with them. But I did invent quite literally the core platform technology. That happened between 1987 and 1989 at both the Salk Institute and then to some extent at Vical, a startup company that was launched in La Jolla nearby the Salk Institute. It happened when I was a graduate student and I was focused on questions about retroviral vectors and I was asking questions about how RNA gets packaged into retroviruses. And so to do that, I had to develop a suite of technologies and capabilities in order to ask the questions that I wish to ask. That is what gave rise to what we now call uh, the mRNA vaccine platform. There's a, a couple of significant advances since I did my work in the late 80s that resulted in nine domestic U.S. patents and numerous international patents, all of which I'm an inventor on. Um, so when I say I'm the inventor of mRNA vaccines, I'm not just saying it. Uh, it, inventorship, in my opinion, is something that's established by the U.S. Patent Office, and uh, I am absolutely the original inventor, filed the original disclosures, etc. I'm I'm of the opinion that it's about uh, a individual uh, freedom to choose, importance of informed consent. Thank you for taking the time to listen to myself and my colleagues today speaking to you from the heart about what we've observed and what we're recommending as the Global COVID Summit team of over 17,000 physicians and scientists from all over the world. We declare and the data confirm that the COVID-19 experimental genetic therapy injections must end. We strongly recommend that these products now and in the future be regulated as the gene therapy products that they are and require public involvement of the FDA's gene therapy scientists and committees in reviewing and approving these drugs. We believe that it's necessary to reestablish the five-year minimum FDA testing period and to cease the emergency use authorization and require full FDA licensure of all novel medical products used for COVID-19. We also strongly recommend that there be investigations of the actual causes of death and damage to millions who have been subjected to these mandatory mRNA and adenoviral vector gene therapy injections. We must acknowledge that the genetic COVID-19 genetic injections cause far more harm than good and provide zero benefit relative to risk for the young and healthy. They do not reduce COVID-19 infection, which is treatable and not terminal. Furthermore, the most recent data demonstrates that you are more likely to become infected or have disease or even death if you've been vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated people. This is shocking to hear, but it is what the data are showing us. The data now show that these experimental gene therapy treatments can damage your children as well as yourself. They can damage your heart, your brain, your reproductive tissue, and your lungs. 
This can include permanent damage and disablement of your immune system. By the end of January, literally after Senate testimony and after gaining national prominence in leading America and the world out of a major calamity, I was rewarded by an administrative meeting and I was told my contract was not being renewed without any of the contractual due diligence of a contract renewal, which is tantamount to termination. I asked why. No reason. None. Zero. At that juncture, I didn't ever say a word about the vaccine. Like any other doctor, I thought it was safe coming out of the clinical trials. I didn't say a word about the vaccine. That was my reward for treating patients with COVID-19. And I wasn't alone. Prominent other doctors were shown the door because they treated patients with COVID-19. My practice was thriving. Research was at a record high. All the program metrics and the programs I ran were metric high. It was the only change is that I treated patients with COVID-19. But you know, as the data uh, really started to emerge on vaccine safety, I could not remain silent. I could not. And it was pretty clear as the dialogue started to evolve that we were having a major problem on vaccine safety. The day they announced the vaccine mandate, the hospital must have gone to the press and the two major newspapers in town published an article. Health system sues, sues a, a skeptical doctor for vaccine comments or some comment uh, like that. And the allegations are that uh, I am using the health system's name or my prior positions in making public statements. It's a clearly overt attempt at censorship. In fact, on my Wikipedia page, it's, it's a whole section on COVID-19 misinformation. So they've already la labeled me as giving misinformation, but in fact, I'm citing the literature. That's information, it's not misinformation. Now, doesn't this look bad? I've had a fake Wikipedia page made about me that claims that I'm giving COVID-19 misinformation. And now state medical boards are gonna hunt doctors' medical licenses for misinformation. Who decides information and misinformation? Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford who once tweeted an article he wrote about natural immunity. Thanks to Elon Musk's release of the Twitter files, we learned some of his tweets were tagged with the label of Trin's blacklist. Apparently the views of a Stanford doctor are disinformation to you people. I, along with many Americans, have long-term effects from COVID. Not only was I a long hauler, but I have effects from the vaccine. It wasn't the first shot, but it was the second shot that I now developed asthma that has never gone away since I had the second shot. Um, I have tremors in my left hand, and I have the occasional heart pain that no doctor can explain, and I've had a battery of tests. I find it extremely alarming Twitter's unfettered censorship spread into medical fields and affected millions of Americans by suppressing expert opinions from doctors and censoring those who disagree with the CDC. I have great regrets about getting the shot because of the health issues that I now have that I don't think are ever going to go away. And I know that I'm not the only American who has those kinds of concerns. Another example of what Twitter has done to censor folks, is uh, from Dr. Martin Koldorf, a Harvard-educated epidemiologist who once tweeted, COVID vaccines are important for high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with prior natural infection do not need it, nor children. The Twitter files reveal this tweet was deemed false information because it ran contrary to the CDC. So my first question this morning of Ms. Gaddy, may I ask of you, where did you go to medical school? 
I did not go to medical school. I'm sorry. I did not go to medical school. That's what I thought. Why do you think you or anyone else at Twitter had the medical expertise to censor a doctor's expert opinion? Our policies regarding COVID were designed to protect individuals. We were seeing- You guys censored Harvard-educated doctors, Stanford-educated doctors, doctors that are educated in the best places in the world, and you silenced those voices. My next question is, did the U.S. government, oh, excuse me, I have another chart I want to show you, Ms. Gaddy. Um, I have another tweet by someone with a following of a full 18,000 followers. This person put a chart from the CDC on Twitter. It's the CDC's own data, so it's accurate by your standards. And you all labeled this as misleading. You're not a doctor, right, Ms. Gaddy? No, I'm not. Okay. What makes you think you or anyone else at Twitter have the medical expertise to censor actual, accurate CDC data? I'm not familiar with these particular situations. Yeah, I'm sure you're not. But this is what Twitter did. They labeled this as inaccurate. It is the government's own data. It's ridiculous that we're even having to have this conversation today. It's not just about the laptop. This is about medical advice that expert doctors were trying to give Americans because social media companies like Twitter were silencing their voices. I have another question, my last one for you, Ms. Uh, Ms. Gaddy. Did the U.S. government ever contact you or anyone at Twitter to pressure Twitter to moderate or censor certain tweets? Yes or no? We have a program. Did the U.S. government ever contact you or anyone at Twitter to censor or moderate certain tweets? Yes or no? We receive legal demands to remove content from the platform from the U.S. government and governments all around the world. Those are published on a third-party website, and anyone can review Thank them. God for Matt Taibbi. Thank God for Elon Musk for allowing to show us in the world that Twitter was basically a subsidiary of the FBI, censoring real medical voices with real expertise that put real Americans' lives in danger because they didn't have that information. But boy, do we have a David and Goliath. And I can tell you, I'm not gonna flinch. And it's just, I am going to be incessant. I'm gonna be uh, dominant. And the truth will continue to come out. I'm going to be very clear about this, and I've recently just testified in the U.S. Senate, December 7th, 2022, the vaccine is killing people and is killing large numbers of people. It fulfills all the criteria for the Bradford Hill tenets of causality for a medicinal product causing death. Our CDC, as of December 23rd, 2022, has over 16,000 Americans that have died within a few days of taking the vaccine. Now, and that's probably a gross underreport. What is this whole thing about? When you zoom out, when you look at the testing and notice that the testing is faulty, there's so much corruption and censorship and there's so many holes in the story. Put on a mask or don't wear a mask and all this back and forth of the politicians telling us one thing, Dr. Fauci talking on both sides of his mouth. And once you start like seeing all the, the holes in the story, the holes in the narrative, and nothing's really adding up. Take all the emotions out of the story. Take all the politics out of the story. And what's really happening? Our society is changing as we know it, before our eyes. There's an agenda being pushed here on the people on a global scale. And people need to wake up and realize that, that there's an evil coming our way 
and they're using Corona as the Trojan horse to implement all this agenda. And people need to wake up because the time is now.